Are you curious about how you might have a more fulfilling work life? Well, you're not alone. In fact, the numbers show us that many of us want more fulfilling work lives. I'm Susan Mikriadon, your host. And as a finance director, ops director and leadership coach, who has lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. But one thing that I've learned that is common to us all is that we are all unique and have unique experiences and perspectives. So join me and my guests as we place a lens on the people side of work life and explore ways to let your uniqueness shine through by sharing insights, stories, strategies and techniques to inspire your work life. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of Life Beyond the Numbers. This week I've put together a compilation from some of the episodes that have gone out between January and April of this year. They're largely focused around the theme of the workplace, or the workplace environment. And in the first snippet, we hear from Kevin Ashley, an entrepreneur who talks about how the secret to success was people. Gib Bullock talks to us about dignity at work and also has a cautionary tale to tell. Megan House provides a somewhat different view on how you might deal with some of the horror stories you have from your time at work. And then Glyn Bailey reflects on dysfunctional workplaces, but also how, how you tune into what you really want to do. Then John Collins talks to us about how he figured out what he wants to do and how where he works now aligns people, purpose, planet and profit in a way that works. And finally, we hear from Sheila Walsh, who is part of a high performing, a healthy high performing leadership team. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of Life Beyond the Numbers as much as I've enjoyed fashioning them together. So hopefully it flows. And this is one of the great successes of Java is, is people are coming into Java with very little skills. So first thing you want to do is you want to get good people on the HR side. So this is really an HR story. I used to personally go through every CV. And this is, I mean, remember, we got to a size where we were 65 restaurants with 2,000 employees. Whoa. Right? So, even when we were almost near that size, I was going through the CVs and I had a, a threshold, right, of what their grades had to be. They had to be smart, right? And they had to be hospitable. And then when they came to the interview, they had to have a good reason why they needed that job. It wasn't because their parents wanted them out of the house. It had to be because they had a brother who couldn't go to school unless they made money to help that brother. And so once they came in, most of them started as dishwashers. But in that three months as a dishwasher, they got to observe the operations of the rest of the restaurant. 
And so whenever I would go and visit one of our restaurants, I would always go straight to the dishwashing area. And people would always go, why are you talking to the dishwashers and you're not talking to the managers? Because I wanted to instill in them a dream. So I'd go into the dishwasher and say, hey, how long have you been at Java? They'd say, oh, I've been here a month. Great. So what are you training to be next? They're like, oh, I'm training to be a barista. Great. I'm training to be a chef or a cook. I'm training to be a wait staff. And so we built that from the second they arrived, they already had a plan. They could see a trajectory where their salary as a wait staff just goes, starts going up exponentially as they jump up the, the, the ladder. So when you build that enthusiasm for people to build their careers, number one, they don't leave your company, they stay with you. And it allows you to build more branches because you have an army of people ready to take the next job that opens up. And so that allowed our whole scale of Java succeeded by really paying and taking care of our staff, number one, making sure every year their lives got better, either through promotions or just raises. We gave every position a raise every year, no matter what. And then giving things like medical cover, pension, all these things that give people um, peace of mind so they could focus on their work. And that allowed us to grow, right? I mean, that was the secret. And so quality becomes easier to maintain when people are happy, right? Totally. But people, the financial security or the security isn't the only thing that keeps people happy, though. I mean, I think there's probably more to it like what you said about speaking to the guy who's washing the dishes the minute you come in the store you treat people with respect yeah absolutely it's respect but it's also how does an individual embrace their day right so a lot of people think it's about showing up right and so we used to try to help our staff we used to try to help them understand that when you're at work you're actually there to serve a bigger thing than yourself. And your job is part of this package. But if you're gonna be here for eight hours, might as well do your best. Might as well figure out what winning looks like in this position in this restaurant. So continuous improvement is not a corporate thing that you talk about in the boardroom. It's every single person has to embrace, how do I get better at what I do each day? right? Because if you're just showing up, there's no purpose. Because we, I mean, the, the whole thing is dignity of work and sense of purpose is what is the key for the future of humanity, if we're all going to actually have a functioning society, right? And so that's what we were trying to get each person to understand. So it's purpose, dignity, the great challenge of, of humanity, in my view, is like, Finding purpose in your work, finding dignity and seeing dignity in other people's work, right? It's mm. important. Mm. Mm. So. Music to my ears, Kevin. <laughs> you say your North Star ambition is to fundamentally challenge the role that business currently plays in society and to seek to harness that transformative power to tackle the global challenges facing humanity, which I suppose the SDGs, but it's it's more than that, isn't it? It's, it's also allowing people dignity at work. Dignity at work, uh, uh, absolutely. And you can see by the, the indicators around 
low levels of engagement? Is it around about the 20% of people are engaged? As in four out of five people are unengaged, disengaged, not enjoying what they're doing. The levels of burnout, mental health issues, anxiety issues. Businesses are, are fairly unhappy places to be at the moment. People, young people with you know, bright people who've done everything right, they've got good education, they've paid through their noses for, they've worked hard, they've got into these elite organizations and just saying, is this it? You know, is this what I want to do? They look 30 years ahead, 40 years ahead to the bosses and say, is that what I want to be? There's not that many role models, I don't think. And so there is a fundamental challenge, uh, identity crisis that business is, is, is playing at the moment. The response seems to be, oh, we'll, <laughs> we'll make our happier places. Google will create these playgrounds in their, in their uh, campuses. We'll have bar football in the canteens. We'll put fruit in the desk and gym memberships and think that's going to make you happier. No, I think until business at the highest levels, at all levels, frankly, takes a long, hard look in the mirror and says, what are we here for? What could we do to make the world a better place? Why do we exist? What, why is it we're making these, these widgets that we make? And how is it we're going to, to make them? Until they do that, then I think we are constantly going to be having these, these symptoms that I've mentioned of, of people who are unhappy. And I think that unhappiness and these symptoms are frankly perfectly normal responses by perfectly normal, healthy human beings to a system that's gone crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you talk about what is it? Uh, you call it the corporate antibodies. The corporate which, immune system. Or yeah. corporate immune system. Sorry. Yeah, which is a fabulous phrase. So maybe elaborate a little bit more on that. Again, it, it relates very much to, well, <laughs> my experience as being an entrepreneur, because I've, I've probably so far in this conversation talked about all the, the upsides and, and maybe giving people the impression that this was all plain sailing and fantastic. You find your purpose, you don't leave the company, you stay put and try and change the company you're in, you launch your speedboat, your lifeboat, and um, everyone's going to applaud you, the leadership are going to promote you, and the business is going to love what you're doing. My experience was that that happened for a while. I got lots of good leadership support. Against the odds, we scaled in our first 10 years, this guerrilla movement, as I sometimes call us, call us, worked in 90 odd, 80 or 90 countries around the world. We were working with all the biggest charities that you've heard of and we thousands of Accenture staff working on half salary, more motivated than ever, ever been. And, and we probably provided a quarter of a billion worth of services. And I, I took the point that I don't think I could have done that, starting that up as a, as a little me and a few friends trying to create a for-purpose consulting business. I think staying in the business allowed us to scale more rapidly. But, and there is the but, this corporate immune system that I talk about is, I think, not unique to Accenture at all. I think it, it probably exists in, in many companies from what I hear, and it is the in, invisible forces of... Middle, middle management doing their job, enforcing the rules, enforcing policy, the performance management processes that are fit for rewarding past behaviours rather than incentivizing new kind of behaviours that are needed, risk management, culture, you name it. And, and when you are the lightning rod for these, you are the entrepreneur. 
you get a lot of the credit when things go well and the, I got plenty of nice plaudits and, and some promotions and some money and I, I was just the happiest person. I had the best job for many years. But then when things don't go so well, the buck stops with you and I found it harder and more difficult. I didn't realise just the hours that I was working, furious hours, because I was so committed to the cause and this was my, our baby. It was a t- I was leading a team and a brilliant team of people. It wasn't a one-man band. I had a brilliant team of people. But we were really finding it harder and harder to, to break beyond this, this, this immune system. And eventually I was the one that broke, I guess, which is maybe where you're alluding to. And so I've had a lot of clients that have come in with negative experiences. And usually they have a problem of letting that go. For good reason, the brain is designed to hold on to things like, hey, remember when you touched that stove and it burned your hand? It's sort of like, remember when you had that horrible boss and she did this to you? (laughs) So it's the same thing. So we've done exploratory work and I'm actually looking to build out something around negative work environments, toxic bosses, because there's a lot of them out there. There's There's a lot of people who have no business managing other human beings. And they're put into positions of power. And you're like, oh my God, how did you even get here? So we've all been through that. And it's a means of being able to let that go. And using storytelling as a way to kind of explore that is really interesting. So I have a a number of those in my work life. And I'm in the process of starting to draft up one that isn't isn't the most painful, but it's one where I feel like a lot of the themes repeat themselves. So these themes that you see in in our toxic work environments, they may repeat themselves in other aspects of your life. You know, I'm not saying that you're deserving of that or you're a victim of those circumstances, but we tend to sometimes regurgitate similar themes throughout our lives and storytelling. So we're doing a program that we're calling Bad Boss Exorcism. Oh my God, (laughs) it's brilliant. (laughs) Yeah, writing process where it's kind of combining the horror genre. So telling your bad boss exorcism, because inevitably when you ask somebody like, oh, have you ever read a bad boss? You're like, oh, I have horror stories to tell you. Now everyone has a horror story to tell you about work. And I, I don't think that it's a, you know, it's coincidental that they happen to choose the term horror, that it's this cautionary tale that this idea that you kind of are in this space to learn from it, but then how do you let that go? right? How do you help the brain to let that go, to move forward, to recognize your possible role in it? or not possible role in it, or understand certain aspects about your boss so that you have a lessons learned at the end of it. So you can explore this storytelling in a kind of fun way. And then you create a lessons learned doc that you can take with you afterwards. So. Brilliant. And I think when I looked inwards to say, what did my heart really want? Where would it sing most? One, I was motivated by, I don't want other women to have to deal with not so good people at a leadership level and I I really try not to swear (laughs) can I just say this one word is it okay you might have fine it's fine I don't want other women to work for fucktards (laughs) that's even a new one for me I've never heard that before (laughs) just don't want other women to work for for people that just have no ability to recognize the impact that they can have on others lives and not take their position in leadership roles seriously. And therefore I wanted to use my own experience of recognizing I needed to find my identity and go inwards to then create that connection to others to say, hey, 
don't wait for a trauma moment in your life before you start questioning what you want. Choose what you want for yourself with a level of consciousness now about who you are and, and what, where you're going in life because you've spent the time to get present to what your heart really desires. And when you get present to what your heart really desires, how you show up in the outside world makes a significant difference. And I think one of the things you say in the book as well, actually, is that toxic leadership or that environment, that bullying environment is a lot more prevalent than people really understand. And you talk about the corporate environment. Now, I've spent a lot of my career in international development or humanitarian work, and I can tell you it's alive and well there, too. So I would say that wherever you have people and unhappy people, yes. you'll have those environments that that allow that behavior to flourish and thrive and to the detriment of hearts yes absolutely it's because they've separated themselves from themselves in some way because I'm a big believer that people inherently are good you know that humanity inherently is good and therefore when people have become separate from their hearts that in some way their ego has then taken over. It's this sense of I, I need to find my, my way of exerting my power in some way. And therefore, in order to feel whole, this is how I'm going to show up. Instead of realizing that actually, if you did fulfill what your heart really wanted, where you had a level of joy and connection to the way you were living your life, you found happiness, the way you would then show up externally would just imbue that same sort of joy and, and internal happiness that you found and I think that's part of the challenge is that there are a lot of people in every environment as you said where there are humans that are blindly on a journey following what society has said is a norm which is get a job measure your success by your wealth and your material possessions or status and everyone's on that track to be someone to be seen to, to have a certain standard of of life that can be deemed to be successful by some society's measure and internally we're all emptying our own cups because actually it's not the truth of who we are or what makes us really really connect to the joy in our hearts when I think about finance it's actually one of the I can't remember where I heard it but but this idea of a return on investment how many people trade five days of unhappiness every single week for two days of freedom at the end of it? What kind of return on investment is that? Who makes that deal? Why would you do that? That would not be any kind of investment anyone would sign off, go five days of unhappiness for two days of freedom at the end of it. <laughs> like, it makes no sense. So, But yet, there are so many people in jobs that make them sick and unhappy and behave in manners that are not in alignment to who they are at their core because they've lost sight of the actual truth of what they could access if they gave themselves the opportunity to access that and it might mean that they earn less money in the short term or it might not but I think there's definitely an opportunity to go is my life just worth that level of misery for two days of freedom or actually would I be better off having five days of happiness and, and working in, in an environment that actually allowed me to, to experience more of who I am at my core.
John, on your LinkedIn profile, I was struck yeah. by something that you have there. As you say, after 18 years of professional experience across multiple sectors, I have learned the obvious truth. Great people serving a great purpose make great organizations. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about the, your discovery. Well, well, firstly, it's very worrying for you to say 18 years. I still feel I'm, you know, in my late 20s. But anyway, <laughs> I think I, I remember rewriting my LinkedIn profile, Susan. And I think if everyone is honest, they, they mull over that for a long time. And before that, I had what I would call a fairly standard bio, which was all about dynamic and deliberate results focused and all of that. And I, in reading it, I just felt really quite inauthentic about that. And when I reflected back on my career, so I, you know, I, I trained as a chartered accountant. My, I think I mentioned this to you before, my father was an accountant. And I think that's probably the main reason why I became one as well. But I, I went straight from university into accountancy with Deloitte and then straight into another role with Diageo, which ended up being, I, th I think, an 11 or 12 year stint with them. And I, I think in all of that time, as much as I loved it and I, I had a great professional and personal experience, I never really took the time to think about what did I actually want and what was the ultimate impact of what I was doing beyond what it was giving me in a kind of a selfish way. And when I, when I left Diageo in 2017, and I should have prefaced it by saying all wonderful organizations that I worked for, when I left, uh, I took redundancy during a restructure. I had the, the luxury of time to really reflect on some of those questions, which I'd never really afforded myself the time either. And it coincided with the arrival of my first child. And that, as an event, provoked me to start thinking about what do I want? What am I doing? Where do I want to go? And some of the things that's jumped out in my career to that point, the things that gave me the greatest pleasure was supporting people, like just helping them realize their potential. And then after a few months of figuring out what I wanted to do, I was really fortunate to be approached by an agency for an interview with Pucker Herbs, which, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit later, but they are an organization that, you know, truly have purpose at the heart of what they do and don't try to retrospectively insert a purpose in something that's already there. And it was joining them that brought together all of those thoughts that I think I had been having, but really allowed me to crystallize it. And so that is kind of what is reflected then in my LinkedIn bio, if, if that makes sense. And so, Pocca, they're a, a beacon, I suppose, for sustainable and ethical business. Yeah. And can we really have it all? Can we do the people, purpose, planet and profit? And can they sit together, John? Yes, Susan, is the answer, in my own opinion, by the way. No, that's not a definitive yes. Um, That's but okay. <laughs> it's it's very it's very easy to underestimate what that actually takes. Every business today will talk about their purpose, right? And they'll talk about their sustainability agenda and all the good things they are doing. And that generally is great, right? Because wind the clock back even five years, and that wasn't the case. And even even Diageo, when I, I look at some of the things they're doing. 
in their supply chain. This is like game-changing stuff in terms of water uses and stuff. And that wasn't really on the agenda five to 10 years ago. But what, what it all boils down to is when decisions are being made about the deployment of resource and whatever that resource is, what are the, the determining factors in making those decisions? And I think organizations have a long way to go before they can genuinely say, we consider all of the impact that we have and not just the financial bottom line. And to get to that point where, where businesses and organizations are truly making decisions with that lens, we have a long way to go. But when you get to that point, that's when you hit the jackpot. It's really hard, particularly when you have stakeholders, shareholders, etc. But this is why I also feel, Susan, that business is the key to this, right? Because business and commerce and consumption is really one of the things that's at the heart of the situation that we're in. And that's not going to stop, right? As much as some people would like it to, it's not, right? So you can either bemoan that on the outside or you can be part of the solution on the inside. And so so that's a long way of answering your question. But uh, Susan, yes, I do believe we can do it, but man, it's it's hard work. Oh, well, it's not a long way either because I think there's there were so many points in there that are important, John. And it is very easy to think, yes, we can just flip a switch and, and kind of prioritize people even, and then the planet and not just profit. But it is that lens you're talking about. And that involves bringing everyone in the business and the stakeholders together. Yeah, no, totally, totally. But And, and I also think, Susan, on that, it, it is easier now because you ask potential candidates to, who are joining your organization, what, what are their intrinsic motivations? You know, and 80, 90% of the time they will say, I want to be part of an organization that is making a positive difference in the world. And that's a genuine thing. That's not a soundbite that they say, I think they want me to say this because I'm in the interview. I do think that the, the new generation, I don't even like saying new generation because it says I'm not part of that. And that is the truth that I have to accept. But the, the, the new generation coming through, for very real reasons, this is front and center of their concern. And so businesses, it's, it's a necessity actually now, because I, I think organizations that just continue to grow for the sake of growth or whose sole purpose is to just generate profit, I think the runway for those organizations is getting shorter and shorter, you know? I, I hope so, John, I really do. And I hope that the longer view comes into play more and more and that the short-termism focus that a lot of organizations have tied around bonuses or whatever it might be starts to get disrupted because I think that's then when, if you can shift that, you can shift yeah. to a longer-term perspective. And it sounds to me like with an organization like Pokka that allows somebody like you parent or all staff parental leave and everything like you said at the beginning the loyalty is there then to continue working for them and you have a long-term view oh for sure Susan and like the I would say that the things like parental leave and the the perks if you like are important right but 
they're not the fundamental positive thing about the organization right that is great and i and i think it's a characteristic of a very progressive organization that values its people but the 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 most satisfying and motivating thing about an organization like Pucka is the genuine feeling that we are making decisions for the right reasons and we are taking into account all of those factors when big decisions are being made like we genuinely are we're not just saying we are and we're not just parking it in the sustainability team who sit over there and create a nice report at the end of the year it's right at the heart and center but also I think what you say is very important Sheila about the leadership team walking the talk and not just expecting the rest of the organization to so you have a team coach and what's that like (laughs) well it's just brilliant I mean yeah, I mean, Cormac, Cormac, our CEO, when he joined us, he came from Australia and and I know from my conversation with Cormac, would be a few years ahead of kind of just thinking and, and that type of thing. And he'd, he'd been on his own journey, which you can you can find on YouTube. But he, and he, he went down like and hadn't been a CEO previously and, and you know, over his seven or eight years that was, was on his own journey and kind of learned the value of investing in your LT and actually really driving that cohesiveness and so when he arrived he, he brought that with him and he, he didn't wait he didn't delay he's like this is super important and and has been just pretty much religious about it so the, so when I joined the team as uh, in, in my role at the moment it was it was just different but I mean as a coach myself and I've done lots of team coaching but it was different to be on the other end of it and it was it was really interesting our coach is fantastic he's absolutely brilliant and obviously he's built relationships with all of us now as well but I think the really great thing is uh, he calls us out he doesn't let us get comfortable and in fact he's like you're all getting a bit too comfortable now and then he'll just throw in a bomb he's like oh my god and it's it's fantastic because it's like anything it's like any sports team they don't wait like every six months or two years or we've done something or we won't bother revisiting it you have to, and, and for me, that's the key difference about the team that I'm working with and, and what, you know, that I'm in at the moment is, is the bar is, is constantly being set and it's, it's fantastically challenging, but in a good way. And so, yeah, it's great to have that resource. It's super to have that investment. It, it makes us a better team. And also it gives you credibility with the business and, and, we, and we cascade it. So we call it organizational health. And, and we always had this kind of premise that we wanted to be high performing. And then this year we were like, well, actually it's healthy, high performing. So it's not high performing at the cost of something. Oh, I love so, that. Yeah. So we, we, we actually, it might only be one word, but we inserted it into our org strategy when we did our review. And we're like, well, actually it is about healthy healthy high performance and and then really focusing on cascading that that organizational health piece and it's very practical stuff so it's all about like meetings how you run really good meetings and what meetings do you need when stuff like that just the cadence the cascade just being super focused on your strategy your priorities and one thing our team coach is brilliant at is really ensuring we ruthlessly prioritize and that we're constantly that we don't just sit and go oh these are, and I'm not saying we would because we're not that type of team, but equally, um, it's just ensuring we don't get comfortable, we don't get complacent, and that we don't fall into uh, the roots of friendship or whatever within the team that we're kind of like, oh, I can't say that to that person now. So it's about that peer-to-peer accountability is a, is a really key piece whilst being focused on the results. So Sheila, if you had to describe in one word, what's the difference between another leadership team you've been in and this one, what would this one bring to life for you 
Oh, that's a... Oh, not a woman of one word. Um... <laughs> okay, give me a couple then. Go on, give me a sentence. <laughs> the word that was coming up for me was, it sounds very refreshing. It is refreshing. And to be honest with you, the word I was going to say was challenge, but sometimes challenge has a negative connotation. But I mean in this respect that it's, it, it makes you want to be better and be better. I and think challenge is, is a great word. But you're right, it is refreshing. I think each of us are completely at ease with each other. We can also certainly be, I can, I can speak for myself as well, we're like vulnerable with each other and be there. be happy to pick up the phone to any of them. We've gone through a fairly tumultuous 12 months. We've seen each other's soft underbellies. There was days last year and, and it was strange when we went into the very first lockdown, I felt quite separated from the team mm. and I was surprised at how much it impacted me because I, I headed west to my mum's in Sligo and I was super emotional and I really felt that I wasn't pulling my weight on the team. I felt that the rest were in Dublin, doing all the good stuff, saving the business, all that. And I really felt quite uh, removed from it. But this was all a construct in my own head. And we actually had a session with our team coach and we talked that out. And it was just really interesting. And it was just like, well, none of us saw that or whatever. And it was just fabulous. But I'm saying all of that now. The words snots and tears. And I was really like, oh, my God, I'm dead emotional about this. But as soon as I cried, I was fine. <laughs> and, um, so and, and there's an openness and honesty. Very much so. Like, absolutely. I do feel sorry for Cormac sometimes, my boss, because I'm sure at times he thinks, I wish Sheila wasn't quite as honest. But um, <laughs> it's, um, it is fantastic. It is fantastic. Um, Brilliant. And it is, it is strange to think we haven't seen each other for such a long time, but it's, I mean, we've seen each other, sorry, but not, not in the flesh, but yeah. It's, yeah, it is refreshing. It's challenging. I, I just feel super lucky. Cool. Imagine if every day you enjoy work, express yourself fully and exceed expectations. I believe we're all entitled to have this and that the future of work life will be changed by those who strive for and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and wider organisations. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and share it with someone you know who is curious like you.